heartbreaking places uh, that I've ever been, probably the most heartbreaking place that I've ever been in my life, is to visit a slum in uh, the capital city of Nepal, Kathmandu. Um, You know, you hear the word slum at times, and I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of a slum, but um, it, it was just like nothing I could have really imagined that people would live consistently in this sort of existence. Um, I have a picture here, and you can probably get some of a, a concept of what's going on here, although walking through the passageways between the shanties and looking into a, the little homes where people were living and everything was um, just unreal. And uh, so here's a picture of this slum in Kathmandu, and you know, it's, it's not like Nepal is a wealthy country to begin with. And then when you're talking about the lowest rung of society there, um, you're getting pretty, pretty close to the bottom here. And what happens is you have thousands of people who come to the city looking for jobs and trying to make a living. Farming is tough in Nepal, and so they'll come into the city, and they can't find jobs. They can't, they can't really make it, and so they end up um, congregating by the river and grabbing whatever they can, whether it's metal or wood or whatever they can find that comes down the river. They grab um, these elements, and they build shanties and lean-tos, and they, they prop them up against one another, and, uh, and they try to, try to make it. And the slum is dirty. Um, it's filled with diseases. And you can imagine in the winter, up in the mountains in Nepal, it's terribly cold living in a slum like this. And I think in this particular slum, there are about 7,000 people that lived there. And in the midst of this, uh, there are families living there, but there are also a number of orphans who end up in a slum like this, obviously without parents. And what they do is they go around the slum and they try to beg for food and they try to find a place to sleep and a place to live and try to eke out an existence as seven, eight, nine-year-old boys in a slum like this. And in this picture, you see this man here, uh, I guess it's on your right side, my left side of the picture there. Um, You see this man, his name is Daniel, and he's a pastor, and he lives uh, in some apartments, like you can see in the back of the picture there, not very far from the slum. And what Daniel has done is he's started a home. It's basically his apartment. He has a flat, couple bedrooms in there. And he started a home for some of these orphan boys to come and live in. And a ministry that we were involved with back in Virginia uh, at our church there supports him. And uh, what he does is he finds these orphan boys and he'll bring them into his home. And he provides food for them, obviously a place to sleep, uh, a warm bed. And they also have the opportunity to go to school. And uh, I was able to visit the home one time when I was there. And it's, uh, it's just an amazing thing that he and his wife are doing there. Now, there are, there are a whole bunch of words that you could use to describe Pastor Daniel's actions, right? Um, I'm not sure what's come to your mind as you've thought about that. Um, there's a number of words that could use, you could use, but the one that I like to use is merciful. Now, why merciful? Why call what he's doing an act of mercy and not focus on the grace of what he's doing? I think both apply, but why am I saying mercy? Well, mercy and grace are very similar, and uh, I'm sure some of you thought about the difference there. And both mercy and grace flow from the goodness and the love of God. I mean, they're both expressions of the fact that God is a good God, that he's a loving God. But there is a difference between mercy 
and grace. And I want to highlight that difference this morning. Think of it this, like this. Grace is God's goodness extended to someone who is undeserving. Okay? Mercy is God's goodness extended to someone who is needy. Someone who's in a pitiful or a miserable condition. Grace is when kindness is shown to a criminal. Mercy is when a homeless man is without a coat in the middle of winter and someone reaches out to him. That's mercy. He's in a pitiful condition there. God has both of those. I think you know that. God has grace and God has mercy towards sinners, obviously. And each one in this room has experienced both God's grace and his mercy. But our story today in Mark chapter 5, and if you're not there, you can turn there. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Our story today is going to emphasize God's mercy. And it's going to emphasize his mercy towards someone who is in absolutely a miserable and pitiful condition. Look with me at the end of this story in Mark 5 and verse 19. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Mercy is the theme of this story, and it's the mercy that the Lord showed to this particular man that we're going to read about in a few minutes here. But when you think about mercy, there's something that gives Jesus the ability To give out mercy. Why is he able to do that? Well, it's certainly because of his goodness. But Jesus is able to bestow mercy on people because he has authority. And because he has power. And so it's in his sovereign authority that he's able to see someone in a pitiful condition. And he's able to to meet that need. And to reach out to them in the midst of their wretchedness and their miserable condition. So... Without Jesus, without Christ's expansive authority, there would be no ability to give mercy. And that's what we're going to see as those two themes come together in the story of the demoniac here in Mark chapter 5. So with all of that in mind, what we're going to see today is four attributes of God's mercy. Four attributes of God's mercy, and these attributes will compel us, hopefully, to share what God has done for us. In giving us mercy. All right, so four attributes of God's mercy. The first one of these is found in verses one to five, and that it's that God's mercy rescues from misery. This is what his mercy does. Now, last time, you remember the story, we saw Jesus get into a boat at the beginning of last time's story with his disciples, and he told them that they needed to cross the Sea of Galilee. Look back at chapter four and verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Now, at the time, we didn't know exactly why they needed to cross the Sea of Galilee. But in this story today, I think we're going to find out at least one reason why they needed to go across. Now, you probably remember the story. And if you weren't here, you've at least read the story. They get out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee. They're making the trip across. Jesus falls asleep in the back of the boat and a terrible squall comes up and threatens to capsize the little fishing boat that the disciples are in. Of course, they panic. They reach out to Jesus, wake him up. And you remember, he stands up, he speaks directly into the storm, and immediately 
upon the word that he speaks, everything becomes calm. The wind stops, the waves cease, and the sea is like glass. And of course, the disciples respond to that in verse 41 with incredible fear. They were afraid of the storm, but there's something even greater than the storm in the boat with them. And the fear that they experience over watching this unfold is greater than the fear of capsizing in this boat and drowning in the sea. Look at verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. And then they asked this question. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And that's the all-important question that they ask. Who is this guy that he can speak to nature and nature obeys him instantaneously? Now, after that happened, I I like to think, what was the rest of the boat ride like? (laughs) Was it quiet? Was there discussion? Was everybody kind of scooting away from Jesus in the boat, you know, as they're heading toward the opposite shore of the sea? But eventually they do get to the other side. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, up until this point... The ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark has been centered in Israel, and it's been in a pretty contained little area. He's been on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. He's been in Capernaum, but he's done most of his ministry right around the lake there, around the edge of the lake. And by crossing the Sea of Galilee, I don't know if you realize this, but they're actually, they're crossing, and when they hit the other side, they're coming into Gentile territory over there. And what happens when they get into Gentile territory is a bit terrifying. Look at verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, I mean, you get this picture here of him putting his foot over the side of the boat. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So, you got to kind of read the whole passage to get a picture of what's going on here. Verse 2 if you read it in isolation, makes it sound like this guy was sitting there waiting for them to get off the boat. But that's not actually what's going on. Look down at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran. Okay, so here's what happened. As Jesus puts his foot over the side of the boat, he and the disciples start to hear this bone-chilling scream. And as they're stepping out of the boat, the scream gets louder and louder. And at some point, they realize that it's coming in their direction. And pretty soon, they see this guy sprinting toward them, screaming, bloody murder. And eventually, he ends up right in front of them, yelling at them. And verse 2 tells us that the man had an unclean spirit or a demon. Now, if you've been following with us in the Gospel of Mark, this is not the first time that Jesus has met someone who's possessed by a demon. I mean, we've seen this a couple of times, but this story is a little bit different because this time we get an incredible amount of detail regarding the man who has the unclean spirit here. And the detail is going to describe this man as being in an incredibly wretched situation. Verses 3 to 5 are sort of like a parenthesis here. And they give us all this information about this man. And I want to read them to you. Here's how he's described. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. 
For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, several things to notice about this guy here. Everything about him is unclean. He's living in a Gentile region, which would have been unclean to the Jews in this boat. He's living among the dead. And living among the dead, being in contact with dead bodies, made you unclean. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but tombs during this time were not like we think of as grave sites. Tombs were caves where dead bodies were kept. And so this guy was quite literally living in caves with dead bodies. That was his existence. And the description here of him emphasizes just how dangerous this guy was. It says here that no one, it makes an emphasis, no one, not any person, no one in existence could bind him. They couldn't do anything with this guy. Nobody anywhere was strong enough to subdue him. It actually even tells us that they had tried. (laughs) Many times they had tried to subdue and to chain this guy up because of the havoc that he wreaked in the area that he he was living in. They tried to bind him up because he was tormenting other people. And it did no good at all for them to try to chain him up. And in verse 4, it says that no one had the strength to subdue him. And the word there for subduing him is actually a word that is used to talk about trying to tame a wild animal. And so I think the picture that you can take away from this here is that this guy had been beaten had been chained up, and no one was able to tame him, not any, any person at all. He was so strong because of the work of the demon inside of him that he would simply tear the chains apart and keep on tormenting and wreaking havoc. And so he was a terror to other people, but notice in verse 5, he's also a terror to himself. Look at verse 5 again. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying or screaming out and cutting himself with stones. He no longer interacts with family. He no longer interacts with friends. I don't know if he had a wife and children. We don't know how he got in this situation. We don't know what happened. We don't know how he became possessed by demons. But normal life is non-existent for this guy. That's the picture we get here. He can't enjoy the blessings of human life at all. Instead, he spends his life living in caves among dead bodies, screaming throughout the night, not sleeping, and cutting himself with stones. And the description here is intentionally long and detailed because Mark wants us to understand a couple of things about this guy. First of all, he wants us to understand how mighty this individual is. And we've just seen Jesus deal with a mighty storm. And now Jesus is coming in contact with an incredibly strong, incredibly mighty man. No one could tame him. But he also wants us to understand how desperate this situation is. I mean, I hope when you read this and you think about what this guy was going through, that your heart just just breaks for him. 
I mean, how terrible to spend your days like this. This is a miserable condition that this guy was in. Now, kind of pulling back from the text here, very often, I think, that you and I, I know I don't think of human beings in our sinful condition as pathetic and pitiful and miserable. We don't often view sin that way. This guy's obviously demon-possessed, but misery like this, a wretched condition like this, this is the goal of the powers of darkness. I mean, this is what they want us to end up in. And we don't know if this guy was, was sinful and that's what got him into this situation, but I think the application can broaden out to say this is the goal of sin. This is where it wants us, in a miserable, enslaved condition. This is where we end up. We think of ourselves as lawbreakers. We get it. Yes, we break the law. We acknowledge that. But the reality is, is that every time we commit sin, when we give ourselves to sin, it is not beneficial for us in any way. The powers of darkness are not working for our good. Sin lies to us so that it can enslave us, just like this man. And that is a nasty, nasty place to be. You may not realize it. I think a lot of times we treat sin like it's a benign game. Ah, boys will be boys. Ah, it's, you know, just a little thing. But listen to how one author described our sinful situation. I love this. I'll read it to you. I know the font is a little small. The real human predicament, as Scripture reveals, is that inexplicably, irrationally, we all keep living our lives against what's good for us. In what can only be called the mystery of iniquity, human beings from nearly the beginning have so often chosen to live against God, against each other, and against God's world. We live even against ourselves. An addict, for example, partakes of a substance or practice that he knows might kill him. And isn't that what we do with sin? We know it's bad for us. We know it might kill us. Eh. For a time, he does so freely. He has a choice. He freely starts a conversion unto death. And for reasons he can't fully explain, he doesn't stop until he crashes. He starts without, with a choice. He ends up with a habit. And the habit slowly converts to a kind of slavery that can be broken only by God. Sin puts us in a miserable condition. And the beauty is that it's out of this sort of miserable condition, as bad as it is, and as enslaved as we are to sin as we're born into this world, it's it's out of this sort of miserable condition that God shows his mercy. Look how Ephesians 2 describes this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is the condition you were in. This is the miserable, pitiful, wretched existence that you found yourself in. And you didn't even realize it initially. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the guy that rules over the demons who are doing this here. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, 
being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's the mercy that you and I have been shown. And it's so vital that we think of that mercy in light of the sinful, miserable condition that we were all in and that we've been saved from. But in order to show this type of mercy and the mercy that this man receives, there has to be a second characteristic of mercy. It rescues from misery, but it also, mercy, rests on authority. This is in verses 6 through 13. So after describing the power of this man, and he is quite powerful, no one could tame him, no one could subdue him because of the demons in him. After describing this, and you know, as you're reading the story, he's approaching Jesus, he's coming up to Jesus. So there's a confrontation that is going to take place here. Now, if you've never read this before, and you're anticipating this confrontation, You see how mighty this man is. You think maybe there might be a struggle here. Maybe you're wondering, who's going to win this full-on battle between this incredibly mighty man and Jesus who steps out of the boat? This man is obviously very powerful. We've seen Jesus do some amazing things. So what's going to happen here? Who's going to prevail? And it's almost silly for me to pose that question and ask that. Because you know exactly what's going to happen when Jesus confronts this man. Or rather, when this man confronts Jesus. There's no question who's in charge. Look at verses 6 and 7. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, it's interesting, just an aside here. The demons ask Jesus not to torment them, and look what they've been doing to this man all along. Oh, the hypocrisy of darkness. Can't even see our own path and our own sin. But in chapter 4, we saw Jesus ask the question, or the disciples ask the question about Jesus. Who is this? Who is this guy that has this authority? And here we get a clear answer, right? I mean, the the demons make it very clear. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? They state it very clearly, but their answer is not worship at all. What their answer is, is a recognition of authority. They know where they stand with Jesus. They know as soon as they confront him, who is in charge here. And they also know exactly what Jesus has done to other demons in the past. Look at verse 8. They ask him not to torment them. Why? Verse 8, for he was saying, and I think it's probably better to say, for he said, or he had said, speaking of other confrontations with demons, for he had said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. But in this Instance, unlike past circumstances with Christ, Jesus isn't dealing with a single demon possessing someone. In this case, it's a much bigger deal than that. In this case, he's dealing with an entire host of demons. Look at verse 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. 
And despite the fact that there are so many demons, there's an army of demons possessing and tormenting this man, they still have to obey the words of Jesus without question. Immediately. They have to do what he says. They have to respond. And they're the ones bowing and acknowledging his power and his authority. It's not even a competition. Look at verse, verses 10 through 13. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him. You see them begging over and over again. They begged him saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. Again, Jesus is the one giving permission here. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, admittedly, this is weird. (laughs) I mean, really, like this is an odd circumstance that happens here. And there are all kinds of questions that come up when you read this, right? Why did the demons want to go to the pigs? What's the deal there? Why did Jesus allow them to go to the pigs? Why did they destroy? Why did he allow them to go in and destroy the pigs? What's going on here? Scripture doesn't tell us the answer to those questions. And in many ways, when we get caught up in trying to answer those questions, we miss the main emphasis of the story here. And I think the main emphasis of the story, you can see the language over and over again, that Jesus is the authority. They beg him. He gives permission. The entire section is filled with language of authority and submission. That's what Mark is emphasizing in this passage, and that's what we need to see. It goes hand in hand with the story of the storm. Jesus speaks words and commands the storm to be calm, and here he speaks words, and this host of demons obey him instantly. He gives them permission. Now, this is an act of mercy for this man, as we'll see in a few minutes. This is something that's incredibly kind to him. But keep in mind, Jesus has to have the authority, the power, the sovereignty in order to be able to bestow this mercy on this man. He can have pity for him. He can want to do something, but unless he has authority, he can't do this. And that's why we say that God's mercy rests on authority. And what should be comforting to you and I here? Is that the the authority of Jesus is an authority that wants to do good. He wants to show mercy. And he uses his power and his authority and his sovereignty in our lives in order to do good to us. Notice the contrast here between the demons and between Christ. What happens when the demons influence someone? I mean, this, this guy here is cutting himself, and he's screaming, and he's running and living in the tombs. What happens to the pigs when the demons go into the pigs? They go over the edge of a cliff and drown themselves. I mean, that's what results from their power and their authority. But as you'll see in a few minutes here, Jesus has far greater authority, and he uses it for good to help this man, to, to show mercy to him. Now, what would you do if you witnessed something like this take place? What's a response to this sort of authoritative mercy 
that happens. And that's our third attribute. When you see something like this, it results in awe. So keep in mind here, this is a display of power and authority when Jesus commands the demons. But ultimately, this is clearly for the purpose of showing mercy to this man. So it's both. It's not just raw power. It's power that is demonstrated in order to show mercy. And it's that combination of authority and mercy that is so unsettling for the local people here, for the townspeople. So initially, the people had been terrified of this demon-possessed man, right? I mean, they had they tried to chain him up. They'd beaten him. They tried to keep him out of their lives as much as possible. But just like the storm and just like the disciples, they'd been afraid of the storm. But when they see this level of authority, they're even more afraid of Christ. They're in awe of him. And it's the same thing here. The demon-possessed man was, was terrifying. But when the people see what Jesus is able to do and the mercy that he shows to this man, they take another step back. Look at verse 14. The herdsmen fled, appropriately enough, and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And look where the emphasis is. Look what, they, what is so terrifying to them. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They have the same reaction as the disciples here. And it's the reaction that happens when they see this man who they've known Probably everybody in that region knew this guy, the crazy guy that lives out in the caves and screams and cuts himself. Something's wrong with him. When they see this guy sitting there completely different, it is unsettling for them. And notice the description of him here. I love it. He's sitting there, not running, not screaming. He's sitting there clothed, finally, and he's in his right mind. He's finally wearing clothes. He's no longer screaming. He's no longer cutting himself. himself. Now he's sitting there probably having a conversation with Jesus and the disciples. A coherent conversation. Talking with them. And the people come upon it and it blows them away. It's unsettling to the max. He's in complete control of his mental and physical capabilities. And it's that serenity, it's that calm after the storm, if you will. It's that that's fear-inducing for the people. Look at verse 16. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They can't handle it. The divine power, the display of mercy to this man. And so they beg Jesus to leave. They don't want to be in the presence of this sort of authority. They're in awe over it. And that brings us to our last attribute here. Results in awe, and lastly, it requires our proclamation. So the crowd of locals beg Jesus to leave, and he obliges them. But as he's leaving, this man who's had this unbelievable mercy shown to him, he's freed from enslavement, Now he's the one who's begging Jesus. Look at verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And if you've been with us in the study of Mark, you know this language that he might be with him. This is him asking to be one of Christ's disciples. 
I mean, he's had this unbelievable experience. And now he wants to travel with Jesus and he wants to learn from him. But as this request is made, keep in mind, Jesus is in a Gentile region. No doubt this man is a Gentile. And as he crosses back into Israel, ministers to the Jews, there probably would have been an issue to have a Gentile among his closest associates like this, especially one who had this background in some ways. And so Jesus has other plans for this man, which this is awesome. Look at verse 19. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now, the change here in fortunes is almost unfathomable, right? I mean, we don't, again, we don't know how this guy ended up in this situation. We don't, we don't know the background. We just came upon him when he was in the, the control of these demons. We don't know how long he's been like this. But notice who Jesus tells him to go to. Verse 19, go home to your friends. In Greek, it reads, go home to your people. So it probably included friends, but it also probably included family. And whether he had a wife and children, we don't know. But Jesus is telling him, go back to your people. Go back to where you came from. This guy had been socially isolated. He'd been cut off from normal society. And he's living a wretched, wretched existence out there among the tombs. And Jesus has freed him and he has given him his life back. And so now he can go to his hometown. He can be reunited with his family and friends. And he could speak of what has been done for him. Can you imagine the joy? I mean, can you imagine the relief that this guy is feeling at this moment? Can you imagine the gratefulness, the thankfulness that he's having over this? Look specifically back at verse 19. And look what Jesus tells him to go and proclaim. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. How much the Lord has done for you. I love this picture of God. He does not sit by. He's not passive. God acts for his people. God does things to redeem and to save. He is the one initiating. He is the one acting. Psalm 66 and verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God. And I will tell what he has done for my soul. Our salvation is built on the reality that God has the power and the authority to save and that he exercises those on our behalf and acts in mercy. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we're able to sing and to rejoice and to return thankfulness back to God because he didn't sit idly by. He acted on our behalf. And that's what happened for this guy. And Jesus says, go and tell people that your Lord, your God is one who acts to do you good and to show you mercy. It's like God sees the orphan and says, I will provide a home. I will take action on behalf of this one in a pitiful and needy condition. God has the compassion and the ability. He sees the need and he can meet the need. That's who he is. 
And this man has the only appropriate response, right? Look at verse 20. And he went away, and this is exactly what Jesus wanted. This is why he didn't want him to travel with the disciples back to Israel. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now, if you're not familiar with the Decapolis, this is a region of 10 cities on the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a Gentile region, okay? So it's outside of Israel here. And clearly this man is from one of those cities. We, we don't know which one. We don't know exactly where he's from. But he goes back to that region and makes this known throughout the entire region. He does exactly what Jesus tells him to. He talks about what God has done for him. And he proclaims the mercy of God. Now what's really, really cool here is I want to show you just how effective this man's ministry was. All right? I don't know if you've ever seen this in the Gospel of Mark before. Jesus tells this man to go in chapter 5. Now flip forward to chapter 6 and verse 53. We'll come on this in a few few months here when we get to, to chapter 6 and verse 53. Mark 5, the people begged Jesus to leave their region. They want him to get out of there. Jesus tells this man to go and proclaim what God has done for him. And apparently he's done that. Look at verse 53. When they had crossed over, so they go back across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and the disciples. They came to the land at Gennesaret, same area, and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might, even, they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. People knew. <laughs> They'd seen this guy and the mercy that had been shown to him. And they knew about Jesus now. He had effectively spread the good news of Christ's work in his life. And it was a completely different reception this time. When Jesus went to that Gentile region. Now, as you think about that, I think the application is is clear enough for us, right? I mean, as you're reading this, it's almost too easy to apply this to our own lives. When you and I come to grips with the life-altering mercy that we have been shown, that we have received, when that happens, we will talk about it. I mean, it's a natural course of life when you've received mercy like this when your life has been changed when you've been brought out of a miserable condition like this guy had when you see what god has done for you you will rejoice and you will talk about it and you will tell people about it it will come up in your day-to-day conversations it will be a part of the fabric of your life and people will know it But in order to consistently proclaim this mercy, in order to make that a very natural thing where you talk about it, you have to recognize this mercy. And I think for me, that's a lot of the issue. Why don't I talk about it? Why don't I tell people like this guy did? Because I don't necessarily think all the time that I've really been saved out of that miserable of a condition. Yeah, I was a sinner. I was a lawbreaker. But it wasn't like this. It's a pretty good guy, right? I was saved at a young age. How much could I have done, right? And I think an interesting question to ask ourselves here is, 
whether you were saved at a young age or whether you were saved later in life, where would you be right now if it wasn't for Christ, for the mercy that he has shown to you? I mean, I like to think about this guy going back to his, his normal life. He goes, he spreads the news of this far and wide. He gets back into his normal routine months, maybe years later. There had to have been times where he thinks, what would I be doing right now? If it wasn't for meeting Jesus of Nazareth, where would I be? Well, he knew exactly where he would be. He would be amongst the tombs. He would be cutting himself, may not even still be alive. And I think that's a fair question for each one of us to ask. Where would we be? Those of you that have been saved for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, where would you be if it wasn't for the mercy of Jesus Christ? What difference has the mercy of God made in your life? Think about that. Consider that. Rejoice in that. And then let's go tell somebody about it this week. That's the goal. That's the proper response. Let's pray. Father, we can't thank you enough for your mercy. We're certainly undeserving. And that's why we've received your grace. But Lord, we're, we were all in a pitiful condition, a miserable condition before salvation. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We were pursuing our own desires that were sinful, were deceitful, and were damaging to our humanity. And yet in your mercy, you pulled us out of that. You saved us. And we want to consider that and then return in response, return thankfulness and gratefulness for that to you. And then speak of that to others. And so help us to do that this week. We thank you so much for what you've done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can please stand with us again. We're-